Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 249. Today is October 3rd, 2017. I'm your host, John Pagliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. Well, we're headed into the fourth quarter, the final quarter of the year. 2017 has turned out to be an amazing year. And in this episode, I want to discuss what I think is not only the most important thing that we need to look at for the next three months, but possibly into the years ahead. And that's the unwinding of the Federal Reserve's $4.5 trillion balance sheet. Now, we're going to talk about some numbers today. I'm going to keep it at a really high, very simple level with just a couple examples of why I think this is important. And even if you're not a numbers person or even if you're someone that shies away from worrying about the Federal Reserve and things, you'll want to listen and pay attention to this episode because I want to emphasize, based on my over 30 years of investing experience, This is one of the most crucial things we need to look at and worry about going forward. I'll get more of that in a minute. I do want to just start out by mentioning that there's been some problems on my websites, investablewealth.com and wealthsteading.com. My tech guy was doing some routine maintenance and upgrades. You know, you've heard his story before. Nothing to worry about. What can go wrong? It'll be a simple process. Well, what do you think happened? Yeah, we hit a major roadblock. Websites were loading very slowly. In some cases, not at all. So if you recently had tried to get into either website and you had problems, I hope you persisted. As far as I know, right now they are back up and functional. I'm keeping my fingers crossed. As a few more of these upgrades get implemented, there could be some more hiccups along the way. So I appreciate your patience on that. And then for those of you that have never visited my websites, um, there's nothing for sale over there. You're not going to get spammed. Investablewealth.com is primarily a collection of my blog posts and in more recent times, my buy-sell alerts. Those are free. They're all archived there. I think there's, I don't know, 170-some posts, something like that, going back to 2013. There's no ads. There's no pop-ups. There's no any of that stuff. I don't monetize the site. And that same thing holds true with wealthsteading.com. That's simply a collection and an archive site for all my past podcasts. So you can go there and search or look for specific episodes. All 249 are on that site. And those are the same episodes that are available through all the normal syndications like iTunes and Stitcher and Google Play and etc. So the information, the commentary is all there. It's free. Use it if you'd like. Now, speaking of commentary, let's talk specifically about the Federal Reserve unwinding their $4.5 trillion balance sheet. Let me start out by saying a couple things here, too. I don't think they're going to totally unwind that whole balance sheet. They may knock off a trillion or two dollars, but I think they're still going to keep enough on their balance sheet that when the next financial crisis comes along, they'll be able to more easily pump that into the economy without having to print as much money as they had, you know, since the 2008 financial crisis. That goes contrary to what a lot of people are saying, but I do think that's the case. Let me explain this a little bit too. We're not going to get into all what the balance sheet is and what the Federal Reserve does. If you don't know that, then what I'm going to say now maybe doesn't have any meaning to you anyways. But trust me on this one. There's an old adage on Wall Street that is one of the truest things that has ever come out of Wall Street. And the saying goes, you don't fight the Fed. Okay, You don't fight the Federal Reserve. And what that means is when the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates, That generally means that they're trying to cool off an overheated economy and you're most likely headed to recession. On the other hand, if the Federal Reserve is cutting interest rates, that means that they're worried about a business cycle slowdown or the fact that the country is already in a recession and they're trying to free up and make money more accessible 
and that eventually is going to spur the economy forward, and if not the economy, at least Wall Street. So if you know nothing else about investing, the phrase, don't fight the Fed, is a good place to start and to never ignore Fed policy. Just looking back over the last decade or so, since the last financial crisis and since the Federal Reserve has taken unprecedented steps to raise their balance sheet from about $800 billion to now somewhere around or over $4.5 trillion, and that's a significant amount of money if you can get your head around that, $4.5 trillion is more or less somewhere around the total market capitalization of the top 25 or 30 of the largest companies in America. So if you pretty much think of all the stocks in the Dow Jones Industrial Average, Walmart, Chevron, Mobile, Johnson & Johnson, Nike, Procter & Gamble, I mean, just all those companies, AT&T, Verizon. If you take all their accumulated market capitalization, all the value of those companies, it's somewhere probably a little bit more than $4.5 trillion, but it's in that neighborhood. So the amount of money that's on the Federal Reserve balance sheet is immense. And the reason they took it up to that level was to ensure that there was a lot of money supply since the financial crisis, and more importantly, to make sure that banks had liquidity and were properly funded. This was to cover up and paper over all the bad investments, all the bad real estate investments that were made prior to 2008, and to also try and get a handle on reducing and artificially suppressing long-term interest rates. Again, I'm not going to go into all the mechanisms of what I just said and how the Fed can and can't control interest rates. You'll just have to trust me on this a little bit. What I really want to emphasize is the magnitude of this unprecedented building up of our central bank's balance sheet, and then not only ours, but all the central banks around the world. The European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan, People's Bank of China, the Australian Central Bank, everybody. Everybody has printed and increased their balance sheets to unprecedented levels. Now, you can argue the pros and cons of that, but the bottom line is, is that that is how the banking industry and the governments have been helping the economy muddle through the major transition that we're seeing that all global economies are going through. And again, whether you like it or not, or whether you think the long-term impacts are going to be good or bad, remember the old Wall Street adage, you don't fight the Fed. This $4.5 trillion that's on the Federal Reserve's balance sheet didn't happen overnight. Since 2008, there were three periods, each one with greater intensity than the previous one, that bought government bonds and treasuries as well. And this is for the first time that the U.S. Central Bank has done it. They also bought mortgage-backed securities. And so there were three rounds of what was called quantitative easing, or QE, 1, 2, and 3. And the important thing to remember here is that the actions that they've taken are unprecedented because up till this point, as far as we know, and I say as far as we know because we don't audit the Federal Reserve, but we don't believe that prior to 2008 that the Federal Reserve invested in securities outside of government treasuries. But the financial crisis was so deep and the situation so dire that just normal manipulation of the money system couldn't achieve the artificially low interest rates that the Federal Reserve wanted to attain. And so to do that, they had to go out and buy mortgage-backed securities. That's the mortgage that you would have on your house. The Federal Reserve went out and bought those mortgages because that kept a cap on how high interest rates could go. This effect on the economy was so critical that when quantitative easing one and quantitative easing two, when those programs were ended, we had an abrupt pullback in the stock market, 
And in fact, really the only substantial pullbacks that we've had in the last eight years occurred when those quantitative easing programs were ended. We also had a minor pullback in the fourth quarter of 2014 when QE3 was ended. And I think a little bit of that was anticipation of what had happened in the previous quantitative easing programs when they were ended. But really what drove the effect of the October 2014 pullback, in my opinion, had less to do with the end of QE3 and had more to do with the Ebola panic, which was short-lived. But if you remember for a, a week or two in October, there was the first case of Ebola had been diagnosed on someone coming in from overseas and brought it into the United States. And I think more than anything, that's what brought the market down at that time. Now, this is a critical point. Why did the markets pull back when QE1 and QE2 were ended, but not when QE3 was ended? Well, there's two reasons. The first reason is, is that QE3 was not ended abruptly. They actually started to taper down how many mortgage-backed securities and how many government bonds were being purchased each month. And it took them about a year or so to scale back. Reason number two is more important. And that's the fact that the Federal Reserve's balance sheet was already gigantic at that time. In October of 2014, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet was in the neighborhood of $4.5 trillion. Again, I try to emphasize that's about the value of all the big 25 or 30 largest corporations in America. So they had a big war chest to play with. And the key point, I believe, of why the ending of QE3 didn't cause a panic or cause the markets to collapse or even to pull back significantly was because that $4.5 trillion was never retired. Whenever any of those treasuries or those mortgages matured, and you have to remember that the Fed wasn't necessarily going out and buying only 30-year mortgages or 30-year government bonds. In fact, I believe the average maturity on the debt on the Federal Reserve balance sheet is somewhere around five years. So that means that they laddered into these with a variety of maturity dates. And as those bonds began to mature, that money was reinvested to buy new bonds. And so while at the height of quantitative easing three, the Federal Reserve may have been purchasing as much as 60 billion bonds a month, the magnitude would now be much lower than that, but it would still be immense in historical terms. Because as those bonds matured, the Fed was going in and renewing them and buying somewhere around maybe 15 to $30 billion a month in new debt. And to top that off, and Really not going to get into it in this episode, but you have to remember that the United States Fed was working in concert with the other central banks. So as we backed off, China piled on on their quantitative easing, as did Japan, and as did eventually the European Central Bank. The European Central Bank to this day is still purchasing around 60 billion euros a month. And that's not only government debt and mortgage-backed securities, but they're actually purchasing equity in companies, as is the Bank of Japan and who knows where else. So even though the Federal Reserve stopped the quantitative easing program back at the end of 2014, they've continued to roll that money back into the market to the tune of, say, 15 to $30 billion a month. But now, as of October 1st, they're saying they're going to start scaling that back. And it's not that they're going to not buy any more bonds. It's just that they're going to buy less than they have been. Now, the information I'm telling you is not new. It's something that the Federal Reserve has been telegraphing for at least 10 or 12 months. And it's something that's been discussed for the last eight years. But even though it's been discussed, it doesn't mean that we know exactly how it's going to work or what the outcome's going to be. 
because again, this is something that's never occurred before and never on this magnitude. And just to give you some idea of how large this is, the Federal Reserve is going to start out by scaling back and reducing the amount that they're reinvesting in increments starting at $10 billion a month and taking that up to $50 billion a month at some point. Now, they have a regular schedule of how they're going to advance from $10 to $50 billion, but you can rest assured that that is not going to be written in stone. If they start scaling back on their purchases of government bonds and mortgage-backed securities and we see interest rates spike and the economy slows down because no one can afford to buy a house or buy a car, well, then you can be pretty darn sure that unless the feds want to throw the country into a depression, that they're going to back off on that. So I want to stress, you know, just because they say they're going to do something doesn't mean they will. Just like for the last eight years, they've been talking about the economy reaching an escape velocity to the fact where they would raise interest rates and where they would take this money off their balance sheet. And yet for eight years, they haven't. But again, the important thing here is the old adage on Wall Street, we don't want to fight the Fed. And if the Fed is trying to raise interest rates, that means to some extent, they are going to cool off at least some sectors of the economy. Those are sectors that we as investors don't want to have our money in. Now, to emphasize the magnitude of what a rollback on the Federal Reserve balance sheet could mean to the economy, let, let me just illustrate one high-level item, and that's the issuance of government debt. For 2018, it's estimated, and this is before any tax cuts that Trump may get through, but right now, the budget deficit for the federal government in 2018 is estimated to be $352 billion. Now, if we take $352 billion and we divide that by 12, just to get a rough estimate, that means that on average, for the next 12 months, the government would be issuing a little more than $29 billion a month in debt. And for our purposes, let's just round it off and call it $30 billion a month. Now, you heard me just mention that the long-term plan for the Federal Reserve over the next couple years is to scale that debt reinvestment down to where it could be $50 billion a month. If the federal government is only issuing $30 billion a month and the Federal Reserve is retiring an additional $50 billion a month, you could end up with a major liquidity crisis, meaning that there's nobody there to buy government bonds. Well, let me step back a minute here, too. Now, remember, that $50 billion a month would not only be government debt, but it would also be mortgage-backed securities. And it's about 60% government debt. So really, when we're talking about retiring $50 billion a month, only 60% of that would be government bonds. And so 60% of $50 billion, what does that take us to? Well, that's a magical number of $30 billion a month exactly the proposed amount of debt to be issued every month in 2018. So do you see how that liquidity crisis could come in? If the government has thus far been purchasing with reinvestments 15 to $30 billion a month, and the government is only issuing $30 billion a month, that means that the Federal Reserve has been purchasing anywhere from 50 to 100% of government debt. Okay, they've been monetizing the debt. Now, those numbers aren't exact, and they may be a little bit exaggerated, but you get the point. You don't have to have a PhD in economics to understand the magnitude of how big $4.5 trillion on the Federal Reserve's balance sheet is. And that, again, is why the stock market nor the economy didn't crash or pull back or slow down after QE3 was ended. 
is because that war chest of $4.5 trillion was so large. And so simply each month, as those securities began to mature, they were rolled back into the economy and it was buying up all this excess government debt. That's why interest rates today are like 2.3%. And with my back of the envelope calculations, I think 10-year treasuries should be closer to 4%. The Federal Reserve, all the major financial institutions recognize the fact that interest rates are way too low to the extent that they're causing problems in the overall economy. They're raising certain prices of assets, things like real estate and the stock market beyond what they naturally should be. And they're also causing malinvestment and zombie companies that should otherwise have gone bankrupt. They're allowing them to stay in business because interest rates are so low. This is also having a major problem on things like pension funds because insurance companies and pension funds rely on returns or expect returns of somewhere between 7 and 8% in order to meet their future demands for the insurance or the annuities or the pension fund payouts. Well, when 10-year treasuries are only paying 2.3%, and for the most part of the last eight years, they've paid considerably less than that, you can't find a safe place to get 7 to 8%. And so everybody in the financial community realizes that interest rates have to be allowed to what they call normalize. And again, I think normalizing is probably somewhere around 4% on the 10-year treasury, given the current economic situation. The problem with that is, is that there's going to be pain associated with that because when interest rates go up, the cost of capital, the cost of borrowing money goes up, and that means less people can afford cars and houses and furniture and all the other things that this quantitative easing, easy money has been spurring along for the last eight years. And so with the Federal Reserve scaling back and potentially raising interest rates, while that is definitely a good thing, the problem is that it's going to be pain. It's like an alcoholic that can't find a drink. And so they're going to have withdrawal symptoms. And so to some degree, to one degree or another, we can expect the economy to go through some type of withdrawal pains. Let me digress here and make one more comparison just to show you the enormity of what I'm talking about and how this can impact the economy and, and to just take it out of the stock market. Let's just look at really the largest sector of the economy, the largest sector of any type of investment or purchase that the average American makes, and that's their home, purchasing a home or getting a home mortgage. As I record this, I just did a Google search, and it looks like the market price for a 30-year mortgage is right around 3.8%. The average home in America is right around $310,000. For my purposes, though, we're just going to use that as a simple $300,000 mortgage at 3.8% on a 30-year mortgage means that your monthly payment of just interest and principal would be right around $1,400 a month. Now, if the Federal Reserve does want to normalize interest rates, and my estimate of around 4% on a 10-year treasury is about right, that means that we can probably expect interest rates on 30-year mortgages to go up at a minimum of 1.5%. Now, I could argue that they're going to go up a lot more than that, but let's just use a conservative estimate of 1.5% increase. That would place the interest rate on a 30-year mortgage at about 5.3%, and that would take the monthly payment up to about $1,666. Let's just call it $270 more a month than what people would be paying today on their mortgage. That's an increase of about $3,250 a year. And so you have to ask yourself, 
does the average American have an additional $3,000 or more a year that they can spend on their housing cost? Now, since most Americans live paycheck to paycheck, and since we're not seeing an increase in take-home pay or the hourly wage, I think the point can be made that most Americans are not going to have that extra $270 a month. And so what that means is that the number of homes being sold will be reduced, or the selling price of homes will come down, or less expensive housing units will be built to reduce the price, or if consumers do opt to spend the extra $270 a month on housing, that's $270 a month that they won't have for their car payment or their cell phone payment or their cable or for eating out or to purchase anything else. So the point I want to make here is that any type of increase in interest rates or any type of normalization to that 4% on the 10-year treasury that we should probably be at, that's going to cause pain points somewhere. That's going to mean that the cost of capital is higher and people are getting less for their money. And so housing, cars, consumer discretionaries, consumer staples, all those things could see a decrease in sales or a decrease in the percentage growth of sales because the average consumer is going to be spending an extra $250 or $300 on financing costs and they're not getting the equivalent increase in pay from their employer. That could cause a recession. And a recession generally means that the stock market is going to pull back 10 to 30%. Now, does that mean that that's in the cards and that's what's going to happen? Well, it all depends on how much the Federal Reserve opens up that spigot. And that's the point I want to get across here, is that remember, we don't want to fight the Fed. If interest rates are going to go up, that is going to have certain impacts on areas of the economy. But at the same time, the strings are being pulled by the Federal Reserve, and they can adjust how much or whether they don't adjust the rates at all simply by manipulating how much bonds and mortgage-backed securities they purchase every month. And since they have $4.5 trillion on their balance sheet, they have an enormous amount to work with. And they can turn that spigot on or turn it off or let it trickle or do whatever they want with it. And just to carry on the illustration of the monthly national debt of that $10 billion that they're going to scale back, only $6 billion of it would be government bond purchases. And since bond purchases are somewhere around $30 billion a month, we're talking about the Federal Reserve only walking away from about 20% of the monthly debt issuance. Now, that's actually kind of crazy talk when you think about the magnitude that the central bank is scaling back by only walking away from 20% of the monthly federal deficit. I mean, these numbers are immense. Just like a drug addict or an alcoholic can't have their drug taken away from them or they go into shock, I don't think we're going to see the Federal Reserve totally pull the carpet out of the economy. This 20% drawdown in reissuance of purchasing of new debt is going up as kind of a trial balloon. They're going to see what happens and they're going to manipulate it. But I'm assuming they don't want to crash the economy. I also don't think, as I mentioned earlier, that they're going to retire all this debt. It's at $4.5 trillion now. It used to be at $800 billion. I don't think we're going back to $800 billion. They'll probably take it down to $3 trillion, no, $2.75 trillion, somewhere in that neighborhood, something that gives them a large war chest to continue to manipulate this economy because there's been too much malinvestment, and they can't just take the drug away that quickly. The other thing to consider is, is that even though our central bank is scaling back, none of the other major economies are. 
Again, I don't think this is by accident. I think this is orchestrated. If we start to pull back and things do go south, there's enough global money floating around in the system to allow the Federal Reserve to recalibrate and back off. So to sum things up, while I don't think the Federal Reserve is going to drastically normalize or increase interest rates so that it throws the country into a recession, that doesn't mean that I'm not paranoid about it, nor that I won't be watching for the signs. Like anything, we don't want to listen to what they say. We want to watch what they do, and we'll know what they're doing by the reaction of the market. So going forward, I won't be looking at any new data, but I will be scrutinizing certain things a little more closely. I'll be watching United States and global interest rates. I'll be watching the price of gold and other commodities like oil. I'll be watching the price, the value of the U.S. dollar in comparison to other major currencies. I'll also very carefully be scrutinizing the employment rate and looking for some upticks in what has been a very tight labor market. And as I look at those numbers today, despite all the gloom and doom I hear out there, I am not making any changes to my portfolio. Because the stock market in the U.S. as as well as pretty much around the world, they're continuing to go up and commodity prices are relatively stable to flat. So while there could be storm clouds on the horizon, there doesn't seem to be an imminent threat. And uh, again, I'm not changing my portfolio. Incidentally, I'll put a link in today's show. You can go back to a couple months ago where I put a video up on YouTube outlining the major sectors that I'm invested in and talking about my outlook for the back half of 2017. That's still valid today. And I'll also put a link in there to a new video that I put up where I talk about this renegotiation of NAFTA and how I think that will impact my holdings in a Mexican ETF, which is EWW. That's Echo Whiskey Whiskey. Now, my comments in that video are specific to Mexico, but in general, that's pretty much the policy or the outlook that I have for all my international and emerging market holdings. And so until the next episode, as always, this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best returns.